You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Uh, I'm James. I'm your special speaker today. So, um, welcome to church. Uh, thankful we're here. The um, passage that we're looking at is going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you are welcome to open to it there. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely that there will be a blue Bible in the seats near you. If you or someone you know doesn't have a Bible, please take that. That's yours. It's our gift to you. We believe in the power of reading Scripture and letting Scripture uh, transform us. So as you do that on a regular basis, we grow. So I want to encourage you to do that. Acts chapter 10. The big idea in Acts chapter 10 is this, that God empowers you to cross lines of division to bring the good news of salvation in Jesus to all people. Okay, that's a big thought, so let me say it again. The big idea in Acts chapter 10 is that God empowers you to cross lines of division to bring the good news of salvation in Jesus to all people. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. I'm excited about it. It's a big idea. We've got lots of text to move through, so let's go ahead and pray uh, and get into the message this morning. Uh, Jesus, thank you um, that through you, salvation is possible that you haven't left us alone, please empower us um, to receive that message and to embody it in every aspect of our lives and to take it to the world around us. We trust you, we love you, and we're grateful for you. God, come alongside us. Assist me to be able to speak with clarity, um, with wisdom this morning. Holy Spirit, we trust you to teach us through this time. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, The hero... In every biblical story is God. Um, And uh, Acts chapter 10 is no different. In this story, you're going to get introduced to a couple of characters. You'll see Peter and you'll see Cornelius. But really, the big hero is God. Because in this story, you see God moving to um, bring these two people, and Peter and Cornelius, together. Now, this particular story in Acts chapter 10 is actually really rather significant. Uh, If you read the book of Acts, you'll see the story first appear here, and then Luke, the author of the book of Acts, will then repeat the story two or three more times over the upcoming chapters as a way to help solidify just how significant this story is as a turning point in the big arc of the book of Acts so far. So, if you know anything about me, you know I'm a big fan in the word context. And in this one, I thought, you know, in order to really help understand what's going on in Acts chapter 10, we're going to have to zoom out a little. In fact, we're going to have to zoom all the way out. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to try to give you a sense of what's happening for why this particular moment is so important. Now, I'm going to attempt to do what really should never be done, which is condense like four years of Bible school in the next three minutes. I'm going to try to give you the arc of the entire biblical story from then until now to be able to give you a sense of what goes on. So hold on here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a good world. Right? It's a beautiful world, and in it he places people who are made in his own image, and he declares over this world that it is very good. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that this is how life should be. 
And then in Genesis chapter 3, through Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion, sin enters the world and chaos and murder and sickness and decay and corruption and rebellion are the result. And from Genesis 3 all the way up to Genesis 11, things get very, very dark. But then in Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to this new character, a man named Abraham. And through Abraham, God will make a series of promises, one of which is that he will give them a great land. That's the nation of Israel. He will make them a great country or people. That's all of these people. And he through him that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Now, if you know anything about the Abraham story, he's super old. He should not be having kids. His wife definitely shouldn't be having kids, but they do. It's a miracle. And through Abraham's kids come the nation that we now know today as Israel or the Jews. Jews, and it's to this group of people that God says, I am going to make you a special and treasured possession. You will be my lighthouse to the world. In staying faithful to me, I will be faithful to you, and you will proclaim how the entire world can be blessed. And the Old Testament, by and large, is the story of Israel's relationship with God, and largely it's not too encouraging. The people fall down and they fail and they're unfaithful to the covenant and yet every step of the way, God remains faithful to his people and to his promise that through Abraham's people will come a blessing for the whole world. By the time the New Testament opens in the book of Matthew, all of this becomes really fuzzy. There's really no obvious way that God is going to be able to bring this to where he wants it to be. But then, of course, we get introduced to Jesus. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 1, the Bible is very clear to point out, is a child of Abraham. He's part of that lineage. So that means that Jesus is Jewish. And you see, all throughout Jesus' ministry... He's doing very Jewish things, like going to the temple, and he's praying at the prescribed times during the day, and he's offering the appropriate sacrifices. But Jesus is doing something very different, because not only is Jesus the Jewish king and Messiah, and what I hear, oh boy, okay, that's a term we may need to stop and define just for a second. Okay, so the Messiah means Christ or chosen one. That means that God had a plan to make things right in the world. What was God's big agenda to order to undo all the sin and the corruption and decay and the death? What God did through Jesus wasn't just to send a Jewish carpenter onto the scene to say a few good things, muster up a little bit of support, and then ultimately die on the cross. What God did through Jesus was to proclaim that now in Jesus a whole new way of life, a whole new way of doing business, a whole new way of, of, of being in the world is now being, as, as this new day is dawned. We call it the kingdom of God. That into this darkness comes Jesus as the light of the world and he establishes in himself this new way of doing things and gathers around himself a people who will then proclaim that Jesus is the one and true king course when jesus dies he doesn't stay dead and in jesus's death of course we experience the great grace that god has given us in jesus god has established his kingdom of grace in jesus or in goodness in jesus all the curses of genesis chapter 3 of death decay destruction pain tears and heartache become erased in jesus the great gulf of separation that causes that exists between god and us is now bridged By Jesus, his goodness, his right standing becomes ours as we have faith in him. Jesus is establishing a new world within the old one. 
the one that looks like Genesis 1 and 2 when God is really, truly the king of all. And that's the really good news. That's the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim, that in him a new world had dawned, and through faith you participate in that world. Do you notice what Jesus says after his death and resurrection in the first chapter part of Acts? The disciples are all super stoked. They're like, hey, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Because what they're really after is the sense of like Jesus ruling from this big throne and with a big sword, getting everybody to serve him. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm about. That's not what I'm about. But here's what I want you to do. I want you, I want you, I want you to proclaim me as the risen Lord and Savior. I want you to be my witnesses. And he gives them a kind of a, a fourfold thing. He says, do it in Jerusalem. I want you to do it in Judea. I want you to do it in Samaria. I want you to do it to the ends of the earth. So geographically speaking, they're in Jerusalem. That's their hometown. And Judea is like the county or the country around it. And Samaria, Samaria is kind of interesting. Samaria is geographically close. It's like, it's like a city or a region within the broader space of Judea. So it's geographically close, but it's culturally distant. All right? Jews and Samaritans really didn't have any dealings with each other. And then to the ends of the earth. Well, if you notice the story in the book of Acts up to this point, what have you seen happen? If you've been paying close attention, you see that all the major players in the story up to this point are Jewish, and the most of the people that they're reaching are other Jews with the good news of Jesus. Now, you see Philip and a few others reach the Samaritans, and that was a big step, right? Samaritans were kind of like half-breed Jews, and so it was like kind of okay, but nobody had gone through the big step of taking things to non-Jewish people. We call them Gentiles. That sphere that says the ends of the earth. I say all of that to let you know that right here in Acts chapter 10 is the first moment where you see that threshold get crossed as the gospel, which began as the good news about Jesus for the Jews, now gets spread to the entire world. And you're going to see it through one man, Peter, and another man, Cornelius. All right? So we are standing here on the front step of Acts chapter 10, okay? The main characters, as we mentioned, is this non-Jew named Cornelius and then this other Jewish guy named Peter. This is the same Peter that's the walk on water Peter, deny Jesus three times Peter, preach at Pentecost Peter, same guy. He's now gone through the region, um, through Palestine, and he's done a whole bunch of healings and miracles. He raised Dorcas from the dead, if you were here last week, to hear Spencer talk about it. And now he's kind of pooped, so he's... um, he talked to a buddy who's got this like beachfront villa down there in this little town called Joppa, and he's just hanging out for a little R&R right there on the Mediterranean Sea. So that's where we find Peter, and that's where we're going to get into Acts chapter 10. So let's open it up. Acts chapter 10, verse 1 starts this way. It says, At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, and he says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, verse 5, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sends them down to Joppa. Okay, now remember, Peter is down there chilling out in Joppa at his beachfront B&B, and this man Cornelius is up here in Caesarea. You see Caesarea towards the top and then Joppa down there in the middle. It's a gap of about about 40 miles or so between these two, all right? 
Okay, now look at how the text describes Cornelius, right? Um, He's a faithful, devout, prayerful, generous man. Is he Jewish? No. What's his occupation? Anybody catch that? He was a centurion. What's a centurion? A centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of a cohort of soldiers of about 100. Okay. Now, if you knew anything about the political climate of the day, the Romans represented the occupying empire. They're the ones who were in charge. And so he doesn't really seem like the most likely candidate for God's grace to be extended to him, and yet that's exactly what happens. The Bible says that he's praying. The sixth hour is like about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So he's praying, and boom, an angel shows up, and Cornelius, this big, strong, military-hardened man, immediately grows terrified at the sight of this angel, which is totally common. Uh, the angel instructs Cornelius to find this guy named Peter, so he gathers a couple of his servants, one of his soldiers, and sends them off down to Joppa to go find this guy named Peter. So let's pick it up again in verse 9. Verse 9 says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals, and reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came again to him a second time, what God has called clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was at once taken up into heaven. All right? So Cornelius' crew is traveling south down the coastline. Meanwhile, the scene shifts down to Joppa. We see Peter. He's up on the roof praying at about, uh, I think it's around noon. He's hungry, which of course, okay? Now, Google image search gave me this gem. And I like it because I like how the animals are as curious about Peter as Peter is about the animals, right? So, so Peter gets this vision, and in the vision, he sees something like a great bedsheet. And did you notice what kind of animals were present inside the bedsheet? Okay. It said uh, reptiles, birds, and all kind of animals. And if you knew anything about um, Jewish dietary law, Uh, which was a very key distinguishing feature of what it meant to be a faithful Jew. Birds, reptiles, and all kinds of animals would make this really big sign for Peter that screamed, Do not eat! And then what does the voice from heaven say? Okay, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, all y'all are strong meat eaters, right? Right? So this sounds like God is telling me to fire up the barbecue. Like this is a really good plan. But for Peter, did you notice what Peter said? Peter is so committed to not violating Jewish dietary law that he straight backtalks God. No, 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 no. I have never eaten. Did you notice the words that he used? Anything that is common or unclean. And then God says what? He says, Peter, what I have called clean, do not call common or unclean. Right? Peter doesn't get it. This whole scene repeats itself three times. Okay. Now, if you're confused at this point, you're in good company because so is Peter. 
okay? Let's pause here just for a second and ask what we've observed so far. You've got a non-Jewish man, Cornelius. He's visited by an angel, and the angel tells him where to retrieve this man named Peter. The angel says nothing about why he should go get Peter or what will happen when Peter shows up, but regardless, an envoy is dispatched, and now we cut to Peter. Peter's hungry. He's up on a roof. He sees this vision of all of these unclean animals. This voice from heaven tells him, actually, these animals are clean. Are these two completely unrelated incidences? Let's keep reading. Maybe we'll find out. Continue forward in the story with me. Verse 17. Peter was inwardly perplexed, yes, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one who you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited the men in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went with them, and some of these other brothers from Joppa accompanied him. All right, so here the two strands of the story are going to meet. Peter's upstairs without a clue as to what's going on or what it is that he's just seen. Meanwhile, this team from Cornelius arrives, and I love this. Rather than somebody like shouting up to Peter, be like, hey, Peter, you got guests here. Who steps in? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit steps in to say, Peter, there's some men downstairs at the door. And I'm telling you this to prepare you for the fact that I have sent them to you. And so when, they, when you greet them, go with them. So notice God's, God's action so far in this story, sending an angel to Cornelius, giving a vision to Peter, sending the Holy Spirit to prime Peter to welcome these men in. Now, why was it such a big deal that the Holy Spirit would have to send to tell Peter to welcome these men in? Jews and non-Jews did not go into each other's houses. This step right here of Peter inviting these men in and later going to Cornelius' house to be a guest in the house of a non-Jew was simply something that did not happen. Can you see the way that God is moving in significant and powerful ways for one purpose, to break down walls of separation? Okay, now we've got to stop right there. Pastor Dave will pick up this story in a couple of weeks, and spoiler alert, here's how it ends. Peter goes back to Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel, and everybody gets saved. It's great. So come back in a couple of weeks to hear about that. I want to stop right there because we've got to focus on this big idea. The big idea at the beginning was God empowers you to cross lines of division to bring good news of salvation in Jesus to all people. The big dividing line between Peter and Cornelius was race. Peter was a Jew, Cornelius wasn't, and for almost the entirety of human history, that would have been the end of that. But God says, I'm go I've got a plan to change because I love and I care for the entire world and all people, okay? Um, God steps in through a series of supernatural events culminating with this kind of bedsheet barbecue incident uh, to reinforce one particular point. The gospel is for all. Period, full stop. Let me say that again. The gospel is for 
See, this bedsheet barbecue thing wasn't just about the removal of dietary restrictions for people who follow Christ. Although, thank God, because I love bacon, it is also about that. The point wasn't so much about what's clean and unclean now to eat. The point that God was making is is that the divisions that Peter had in his mind about who God approved of and who God did not approve of, who was within the sphere of God's saving love and who was outside of that by virtue of their identity or their birth or their behavior or their hiccups or their sin, we define these boundary lines between those who are accepted, loved, and forgiven by God and those who simply cannot be. And God is looking at Peter and he is saying, there are no more lines. Do not call common or unclean what I want to call clean. And now I'm going to ask you, Peter, to go far outside of your cultural comfort zone to proclaim the good news of what I can and will do in the hearts of the redeemed. Among a group of people you previously had no contact with. Remember I told you that this particular story repeated three more times in the book of Acts because it's so central to the reality that the gospel compels us to cross lines of division in order to proclaim faithfully the goodness of our God and King Jesus Christ. All right, so that's the what of Acts 10, 1 through 23. The what is through Jesus All lines of division are broken down, and all people are within the sphere of God's saving grace and love. Okay, so what? That's fair enough, well and good, but so what? What now? What does this have for us today? Let me close with a few thoughts as we come to a close here. First part is this. The gospel empowers us to go outside of our comfort zone. The gospel empowers us to go outside of our comfort zone. Let me talk to those of you who may be Christians for, who have been Christians for a long time, or if you're like me, you kind of grew up in a Christian family, you don't ever remember a time where you weren't a Christian. And there's some research out there, and I went to actually go find this research so I couldn't, so maybe I'm actually making this up, but either way, it's a thought. Um, The thought is this, um, that the longer you become a Christian, the fewer non-Christian friends you have. I think the statistics I saw was about three years. Three years after you get saved, your social group has shifted now, and most of the people you hang out now are Christians. So here's a little little exercise we're going to do. If you've got a bulletin, find a pen or a pencil in front of you. We're going to do a little thought process, so grab a pen or a pencil. And then I want you to list on the lines on the back of the bulletin numbers one through five. One, two, three, four, five, moving down the row. Okay, and then here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to list five Christians with whom you'd be comfortable sharing a personal prayer request, okay? If you're not a believer here today, this isn't meant to embarrass you. We're just kind of, this little kind of like, kind of like intramural exercise we're running here just to kind of demonstrate how this effect may work, okay? So think about this. If you don't, if you don't want to write them down, just kind of think about them in your head, but you've got to get to five, Okay, I want you to try to get there pretty quickly. Okay. Just looking for five people. If you're coming up with a loss, I'll be, a, I'll be an honorary one for everybody, okay? <laughs> so that'll be all right. Okay, all right. For the most part, for those of you guys that are Christians, been walking with the Lord for a while, was that fairly easy to come up with a list of about five names? Can More or less, more or less, okay? If it's not... That's a good clue that you likely need to join a life group because you need more connection, and God knows those people will pray your socks off. So that'll be great, okay? All right, so you got your list of five. And here's the deal. This week, those five people that came to mind, send them a text or a thank you note. Just let them know that you appreciate them. 
Because those people represent strong senses of connection that you need in your life. Maybe not today, but one day, and you're thankful that you have them already in place because when your crisis hits, you want a list of people that you can call on pretty quickly. Okay? So cultivate that. We're in community together. We need to be that for one another. Okay? So if you've got that, thank the people who are there because it's no small deal. So here's the second little exercise, another list, one through five. Here on this list, I want you to write down the names of the last five non-Christian folks you've either A, had coffee with, or B, had invited over for dinner. Is that list a little tougher to come up with? The list of the last five non-Christian people you've had coffee with or you've had over for dinner. Basically, it's, it's the sphere of people in your life who you're relationally connected to enough that talking about Jesus doesn't come as some sort of like completely out of the blue scenario. For many of us, and I'm, gonna, I'm no exception to this, this is a great weakness of mine. I'm not good at sharing my faith with other people. And I don't know if it's because I've got a lot of fear man issues or if I'm not structuring my life in a way that allows me to be around other people. One of the things, I don't know if you noticed, that I love and respect about Ron, Ron has years of stories of being on airplanes and ball fields and boardrooms and, and wherever he is and just talking about Jesus. Like it comes out of him really naturally. And then all of the, like, wouldn't you know, people get saved. Imagine, I don't have any of those stories. Like, that's a gift. And some of you are like, bro, I got my list of people I take out to coffee who are non-Christians is way longer than my other list. That's cool. That means you're a gift of the evangelist. I don't have that. And I struggle with that because, because if Jesus is everything that we say he is, it follows naturally, at least in my mind, that we would be a bigger feature of what I talk about in my daily life. And so I'm working on this with all y'all, and I need help in this, to learn how to be a Christian who can be faithful to the gospel, proclaiming it sincerely in every aspect of life. It's easy to do it from up here. All y'all like me. To do it with people who don't or who don't know you is harder. And so I'm bringing this point up just to raise your awareness that this whole hunker in the bunker with birds of a feather to mix two terribly different metaphors is a really natural thing, is a really natural thing. And if you want to maintain any sense of effectiveness, right? Oh, I'm a bright light. Well, you're a flashlight in a box with a whole bunch of other flashlights, you know? If you want to maintain effectiveness in the world around you, then you're going to have to get outside of the box in a way that we may not be now because it, it strikes against how we're currently wired, which is to find people who agree with our values and agree with the way that we're going to raise our kids and do life and do, do business and all that kind of stuff. And you've got to be intentional about finding, developing, cultivating those relationships. So... Um, the gospel is going to empower you to go outside of your comfort zone. Um, to me, um, the biggest way, the best thing to do about this is hospitality. The era of the soapbox preacher is around, but I would argue that its effectiveness is almost diminishing to the vanishing point, right? 
the way that we're going to influence positively the world for Christ is through opening up our homes, opening up our lives, opening up our tables, and inviting people in. It's February now, but summer's coming, so it's a good time to dust off the Traeger, to go buy a gift card down to Ebner's, to figure out I'm going to begin intentionally investing and just hosting people. And when you get people in your house, and you can just be like a normal, decent human being who also happens to be a Christian, that's a big win. And so I encourage hospitality as an expression of what it means to be on mission. Not as like projects, because God knows nobody wants to be like that person who you're out to get saved, right? Love them for who they are, where they are, and be with them. And trust that Jesus, like he was in Cornelius' life, working and operating in them in ways that you could not expect or anticipate. So when the Holy Spirit prompts you, like he did to Peter, to proclaim the message, it's going to be falling on, on, again, another metaphor, the soil of the heart that's already been receptive to the good word. So be hospitable. Emphasize hospitality. The second thing is essentially the extension of the first one, but the gospel empowers you to be cross-cultural. Cross-cultural, what do I mean? Um, so I'm about as white as you can get. My dad grew up in Salt Lake City, not, not really a bastion of like intercultural activity. My mom grew up in Texas, then Minnesota. We lived in Alaska. These are not places where... There's a, 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 like, I remember literally being 16 years old and making a mental note. Today, I had my first conversation with an African-American man. Like, just, like, I'm white. So I have to work pretty darn hard to cross any sort of cultural boundary. And I live in a community in Canby, which is a quarter Hispanic. And if I want to be serious about proclaiming the gospel to the people in my community, it means I'm going to have to at least develop some sense of bilingualism. So there's that aspect of kind of cultural, linguistic, cross-cultural things. But then there's also the sense of like, I don't know, maybe you guys are catching on to this, that being a Christian is not quite perceived the same way as it was previously. Like, let's take a completely non-controversial topic like, say, sexual ethics, right? <laughs> if you hold to what you might call a traditional view of sexuality, which is, is that the act of sex is, is to be reserved for heterosexual monogamous marriage. Okay? So it's what we might call the traditional view. And if you poll people, which has been done, practicing Christians tend to use words like, I'm sorry, the font is small, but moral, healthy, right, good, and virtuous. Okay? And if you're a practicing Christian who holds to a traditional view of sexuality, you would likely fall on that list there on the left. Okay, notice the list in the middle. If you don't ascribe to any faith, how do you describe, what words do you use to describe a traditional view of sexuality? They are, in order, unrealistic, anti-gay, repressive, too strict, or I don't know. Okay, so, unrealistic, anti-gay, repressive, too strict. The world labels that, the word is an extremist. So how do you function in 
a culture that's largely seen the beliefs, and let's, I'm making an assumption that you hold a traditional view, and I, I recognize that's an assumption I recognize and give space for those who don't. But let's just assume for a second that if you do hold a traditional view, how then are you supposed to interact with people? Um, Portland is a weird place. I don't, if you know, knew this, so FYI, it's probably why you live in Canby. Um, some years ago, I was downtown in Portland, and there was a, a, it was a, there was a protest going on in front of a fur shop, which makes complete sense, right? This, so here's this fur shop. And so you had all of these animal rights activists, including this one, this one woman who was dressed in this very large pink bunny costume. And they were shouting very nasty things, and they were kind of blockading the interest, and the tensions in this space were very high. And I began a conversation with this woman, because I was there as... Um, helping a buddy, he had a, in an internet startup. This was like 2007 when that was cool and stuff. And um, I talked to this lady, and we just start talking about, oh, she was super serious about um, veganism. Um, chances are, uh, if you know a vegan, you know that they're vegan, right? Um, vegans and CrossFitters, they're all the same. They can't not talk about it, right? Um, so she started in on this kind of thing, and she was really serious that the things that you took into your body were the things that were corrupting you and bringing you down. And I was like, hmm, kind of? Anyway, she talked at me for like 45 minutes, and I did my best to kind of listen, and they gradually began to realize that this woman had no interest at all um, in God or religion or anything else. She saw those things as being very, very negative. And at one point, she asked me a question about what I thought about all of that, and I decided to do something dumb, which was to say the word Jesus... Um, and in the context of that particular conversation, that effectively ended the in conversation right then. Yeah. So, I don't know if you've ever had a, I mean, now that's probably an extreme example, but it's representative of the fact that even saying something as benign to you, which is the word Jesus, or to say, maybe I don't agree with you on that, that can be a very strong conversation ender. There's a very, it's difficult to have strong Strong kind of like across-the-aisle dialogue, right? It's like if we've got Trump supporters and Bernie supporters into the same room and ask them to like enjoy one another's company. It's likely not going to happen. <laughs> so you've got all of this real strong polarization, right? And so the question becomes, okay, so what are you going to do? Now, there's a couple of options. The options are, well, to get angry and complain about it, and then hunker even further down in the bunker. And that's always an option. I'm going to argue that it's probably not the most effective one. Because uh, what you're essentially doing is, my perception is that the world's going to hell, and that's okay with me. And I would argue that the gospel compels us to a much more difficult course of action, which is to be citizens in the wider world that don't just consolidate our faith experience to the 90 minutes or so that we gather together on a Sunday morning, but who try to live out effectively what it means to be a faithful Christ follower who can proclaim the gospel with every aspect of their life in every sphere of their life. I haven't figured that one out yet, because, of course, I get a free pass because I work at a church, and all of my coworkers, I'm assuming, happen to be Christians. I'm still working on Dave Metzger, but I'm pretty sure we're close. <laughs> so I don't have a whole lot of practice being a marketplace Christian, but I can tell you 
that I want you to begin to see people, like Ron has always said, with the eyes of Christ, right? They may disagree violently with you. They may consider your stances on issues like sexual morality um, and a whole other host of things as being repressive, as being anti-gay and these other kind of things. And those are things that you're going to have to contend with. So you're going to have to start doing some serious work around what am I going to do? How am I going to behave in order to lower that wall of partisanship in order to make sure that the message of Christ does not get diluted or confused by the messenger. And that's hard. But I will tell you this. We serve a God who's not giving up. As America, largely speaking, moves into a phase in which Christianity increasingly becomes a minority position, the church has thrived in times past in similar places. This isn't the end of the world. And we as the church have an opportunity to still gather, to celebrate, and to encourage one another to be people who trust that God is already on the move like he was in Acts chapter 10. And that empowers us to be able to cross lines of division for the sake of the gospel. And as you move out in that space, it will not be easy, but it will be worth it. And God will be with you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Jesus, help us uh, to grapple with the culture that we're a part of wisely, effectively, winsomely. Jesus, help us to be serious and seriously concerned with the truth of the gospel. Um, Help us not to capitulate or to back down from the principles that we hold true, even if they remain increasingly unpopular. Father, I pray that you would give us grace, strengthen our boldness, strengthen our wisdom in knowing how to communicate effectively the good news that you've brought to us. God, we are thankful for you. We love you. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.